Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka, and on this week's show, we'll hear about how a Lake County artist is locked in a battle with a corporation over who owns the image of a cultural icon, Frida Kahlo. These are my images. It's from my imagination. I'm painting a public figure. I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. We'll meet a guy so obsessed with a film by Michael Mann, he's created a fan-based podcast that's got Hollywood talking. He used the phrase, I compliment your obsessions. And from one of the most fastidious and obsessive filmmakers that has ever walked the face of the earth to compliment your obsessions, that's pretty special. Plus how the San Gabriel Valley became the home base for one of the world's most popular condiments, sriracha. Sriracha. I put that on everything. Sriracha. I put that on everything. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. I'm standing here on 24th Street. This is the Mission District of San Francisco, and it's a hub for Latinx arts and culture. And everywhere I look, I see Frida Kahlo. There are mugs and socks and mouse pads and earrings and keychains, you name it. Everything seems to be emblazoned with the iconic Mexican artist's face. Frida's brand has become big business. Multinationals like toy maker Mattel are cashing in with the Frida Barbie doll. But some of the smaller artisans who are making a living selling Frida-inspired artwork online are finding themselves going head-to-head against major corporations. As KQED's Chloe Veltman reports, the battle brings up complex questions about the ownership of images of cultural heroes in the digital age. Chris Mello has been painting whimsical portraits of Frida Kahlo for the past 20 years. The Brazilian-born artist brings some of her work along to show me when we meet near her home in Lake County. This one, she's daydreaming, which is something I love to do, I need to do for my work. This is based on one of her paintings, but of course it's got my own flair. She says she isn't a particularly religious person, but she sometimes offers up a prayer to Frida. I tell her... I say, you know, I'm not doing this for me, I'm doing this for you. So, you know, stand with me, hold my hand, because it is scary. Chris is timid and elfin with dark eyes and a wide, expressive mouth. She certainly doesn't look like the type who'd launch legal proceedings against a powerful multinational. Yet she's suing the company that claims to own the Frida Kahlo brand. This is a clip from the only known recording of Frida Kahlo's voice. It was made in the 1950s. She's describing the great Mexican muralist Diego Rivera's tireless hands. 
The two were a couple, but he was much more famous during Frida's lifetime than she was. It wasn't until the 1970s, more than 20 years after her death, that Frida Kahlo biographies began to appear, lifting her out of obscurity. Her paintings started to fetch millions of dollars at auction. Then, in 2002, came the release of the Frida biopic, starring Salma Hayek. You've been my comrade, my fellow artist, my best friend. But you've never been my husband. Even before the movie came out, Chris Mello was among the many artists who found a way to capitalise on all the Frida mania. In 2001, after noticing Frida-inspired products on eBay, Chris set up her own online storefront. She started selling magnets, tote bags and other everyday goods, decorated with images inspired by her favourite artist. I mean, I would refresh the computer every time and there would be a new bid. It was amazing. It was so good. But then something changed. Around 2004, a businessman based in Venezuela by the name of Carlos Dorado also saw there was money to be made from Frida. He teamed up with the artist's niece, Isolde Pinedo Carlo, to launch the Frida Carlo Corporation. He registered dozens of Frida-related trademarks and set about licensing a pile of merch. Frida tequila, Frida tweezers, kind of weird given her iconic unibrow, and those Frida Barbie dolls. It's an honour to, to have a piece of Frida Kahlo that will inspire you day to day. That's Frida Kahlo Corporation representative Beatriz Alvarado speaking with NPR in 2018 about the Frida Barbie. She declined an audio interview for this story, but I reached out to her because while this company was making mega deals with the likes of Mattel, they were also trying to get individual artists to pay them for the right to sell their art. They did this by entering into licensing partnerships with the online marketplaces where artists were selling their Frida Kahlo-centric work. This did not sit well with Chris Mello. We have been selling Frida all these years with no problem, and now they want us to pay them to sell Fridas. These are our work. We don't have to. So she ignored those messages, but there were others she couldn't ignore. Hold on a second... Chris scrolls through her messages until she finds the relevant one. There we go. This is October the 10th, 2011. I believe this was my first notice. It concerns a greeting card design Chris had uploaded to Zazzle, one of the online marketplaces where she sells her work. It features one of her childlike, colourful Frida portraits titled Tiny Frida Carlo. They sent me an email saying that I was violating trademarks at the time and they were going to take it down. This was the first of many such emails, promptly followed by takedowns. What was weird was that the sites weren't removing all of Chris's Frida-inspired creations, just some of them. Chris says the decision seemed frustratingly random. So I was mad from the get-go. It wasn't just Chris's finances that took a hit. Her health did too. She felt depressed and helpless. I stopped painting Frida for a while. Because if this is going to be happening, why am I going to... Paint more. Chris's situation was far from unique. When she went looking on social media, she discovered many other makers dealing with similar frustrations, like New Jersey artist Gwen Seamill, who vented her feelings in a video on Instagram. 
Redbubble is taking down designs left and right, and all without giving creators a full explanation of what is going on. In an email, Frida Kahlo Corporation rep Beatriz Alvarado wrote her company's mission is to, quote, protect the Frida Kahlo legacy. And she denied taking artists' work down. Technically, that's true. They don't do it directly. The corporation uses a brand protection agency to troll the web looking for potential trademark violations. The agency's technology alerts Zazzle, Redbubble and other websites when it finds a red flag. And then those sites take the work down. We're not in a position to be the legal arbiter on the platform. Instead, Redbubble CEO Barry Newstead says he trusts rights holders like the Frida Kahlo Corporation to do their due diligence. It's their responsibility to ensure that they are um, they're actually you know, requesting stuff to be taken down that is, is actually um, infringing. But sometimes the technology takes stuff down that's not infringing. Because here's the thing. Trademarks protect words and images that help define a company brand for certain types of products and services, not all things. And the Frida Kahlo Corporation does not own all things Frida Kahlo, just the stuff in the product lines they've trademarked, including, in some cases, the use of her name. That doesn't necessarily include artist Chris Mello's work. So that's why she's suing the corporation in federal court in San Francisco. These are my images from my imagination. I'm painting a public figure. I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And in fact, the Frida Kahlo Corporation agrees. Sort of. In legal documents, it acknowledged Chris's work was removed from the websites in error and promptly reinstated. Then it changed its position and said some of the takedowns may be legally justifiable and some may not. But whatever they say, the takedown notices keep coming. Intellectual property law is really complicated. The legal shenanigans governing trademarks are tricky enough on their own, and additional laws come into play when art and famous figures are involved, like copyright law and celebrity rights. I talk to many attorneys in an effort to make sense of it all. But at heart, they say Chris's story points to a larger issue. When it comes to the digital marketplace, corporations can wield tremendous power. They can assert rights they may or may not legally possess. Plus, you have layers of middlemen and technologies that sometimes get it wrong. That's why artists like Chris are now testing that power in the courts to help keep some of our most important public figures, like Frida Kahlo, in the public space. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. The Academy Awards are coming early this year in just a few weeks. And for those of us watching at home on TV, it's a chance to see cinema's behind-the-scenes creators step into the spotlight, as well as the stars. For most of us, this is as close as we'll get to the people who make the movies we love. But for a rare few, sometimes the gulf between fame and fandom gets unexpectedly bridged. Reporter Carly Severn brings us the story of one man whose obsession with the ultimate L.A. film led to an encounter straight out of the movies. A relief 
like a profound relief when when it's starting it's like right now for the next 166 minutes nothing else in the world is going to matter except heat this is blake howard he's a writer movie fanatic and podcaster not here but in sydney australia and the thing he's talking about is how it feels to hear this the opening music to the movie that changed his life heat even if you think you haven't seen heat trust me you still probably know heat al pacino robert de niro val kilmer in a michael man film it's that 1995 action movie with de niro as a meticulous la bank robber planning the heist of a lifetime i do what i do best i take scores you do what you do best try to stop guys like me and al pacino the volatile cop consumed by his pursuit you are going down directed by michael man who also made last of the mohicans and collateral heat is loud and bombastic it drips with machismo now for the first time america's two most electrifying actors collide As a portrait of dark, dangerous Los Angeles, it also radiates a weird kind of ennui that you don't often find in action thrillers, which might be a reason that in the quarter century since its release, Heat has developed a kind of cult following. All I am is what I'm going after. But let's flash back to our lead character, Blake Howard, growing up in the Australian suburbs and discovering on VHS Heat's vision of LA. this sprawling place where people lived but also that felt so dilapidated felt like it was empty this la the lonely industrial landscapes the endless roads reminded him a lot of his hometown sydney and as blake grew older his obsession with heat only grew it became not only this ferociously entertaining crime film but it had this existential and philosophical underpinnings that kind of enriched every viewing every single time i found something new allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner i never could satiate the itch to continue talking about it fast forward to adult blake in 2017 he's parlayed his obsession into a career as a part-time movie critic but is finding himself at a creative impasse And one night in Sydney, he's talking with a friend about what he should do next with his life. And eventually he was like, "No, what do you want to do?" And then it occurred to me. And it sort of struck me like lightning. I said, "I just want to f- talk about heat every day." Best and worst thing that I, he did for me in that moment was go, "That would be something I'd listen to." And so Blake paused his preoccupation, as many folks do in the 21st century, into a podcast. one dedicated to exploring his beloved movie minute by minute and so was born this is one heat minute drop of a hat these guys will rock and roll at first he gets his australian writer friends as guests and the episodes are rough around the edges and scrappy initially blake isn't so convinced anyone but his buddies are going to be into it so Here we are. The, Here we are. Fir- the, the very first the, minute. Imagine close your eyes, December 1995 this film came out. But turns out a lot of people really like Heat. So much so that strangers start downloading this exhaustive homespun fan podcast 
And then the guest list for his podcast grows into the heavy hitters. Critics like Manola Dargis of the New York Times, Skyping in to dissect the dialogue, the style, the symbolism of one movie. And that is a really telegraphing moment. Yes. Does that make sense? And we are beginning the ending of the movie with Vincent's hand on that gun. Oh, I like that. Blake gets people like Dante Spinotti, the cinematographer on Heat, the guy who created those iconic shots of Los Angeles. It's a, it's a city that allows movie making in a splendid way. And as his podcast episodes climb over 100, there is still one unfathomable dream in the back of Blake's mind. A far-fetched fantasy that his very last one Heat Minute guest for the very last minute of the movie would be his idol, the director Michael Mann himself. Is what I'm going after. And then, it, then, amazingly, it became a reality. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the amazing auteur behind this incredible opus, Michael Mann. Michael Mann, welcome to One Heat Minute. Great, thanks very much. I'm very flattered. In the before it. moment, I was nervous. I was like, oh my God, this is actually happening. But when we started talking... I don't think I've ever been more confident in any interview that I've ever undertaken. The result? A famously obsessive filmmaker discussing his movie about obsessive men with the guy who's so obsessed with it that he's made almost 200 podcast episodes on it. And Michael Mann is into it. It sounded com completely insane in a, in a totally wonderful way. So. In fact, as he's reminiscing about filming that powerful final minute where Pacino and De Niro face off in LAX and only one survives, the big-time movie maker sounds just as enthusiastic as Blake. It just felt like, man, I don't want to be anywhere else on the planet Earth right now at this moment in time than on this set making this movie. <laughs> he used the phrase, I compliment your obsessions. And from one of the most fastidious and obsessive filmmakers that has ever walked the face of the Earth to compliment your obsessions, that's pretty special. And after all that, where does obsession go? One Heat Minute is the fan project that a lot of people in Hollywood now know about. For my name to be now synonymous with this movie uh, is probably one of my greatest ever accomplishments. Blake's making even more podcasts about movies, although none quite so dear to him as Heat. Even if his family, who always knew him as the baby movie buff, aren't too starstruck. Especially like my mom. She's like, what's the podcast? I'm like, cool, mom. Thanks. Um, so there's just, there's that. A satisfying finale straight out of the movies, albeit thousands of miles from Hollywood. And meanwhile, Los Angeles, the city, the myth, the moving pictures, keeps on driving. For the California Report, I'm Carly Seven. And now to a different kind of heat, the kind you can taste, sriracha. It's used to spice up everything from chips and chocolate bars to burgers. Mm. I love this new sriracha burger. It's sriracha. Sriracha. No, sriracha. Sriracha. No, watch how I say it. Sriracha. Not everyone speaks sriracha. Sriracha. But Wendy's is fluent. 
They know the story of sriracha's rise to mainstream condiment began with a Vietnamese refugee who found a home and just the right peppers in Southern California. KCRW's Avishai Artsy delves into the history of the sauce for our series Golden State Plate. So how did the sauce go from niche condiment to a mainstream staple? To find out, I went to the man responsible for Sriracha's high-profile rise, David Tran. He's the CEO of Hoi Fong, the company that makes hot chili Sriracha sauce. You know the one, green top with a rooster on the bottle. The rooster because Tran was born in 1945, the year of the rooster. Tran is wearing a red t-shirt that reads, the boss of the sauce, and he didn't really want to talk. I don't want to repeat and repeat the story. Okay, sorry. The story he's told so many times is how his brother gave him a chili field in Vietnam, so he started making and selling hot sauce in the late 70s. The chili sauce actually originates in Thailand, in a coastal town called Siracha. Donna Lam, his sister-in-law, and the company's executive operations officer jumps in. And they used to sell them actually on bikes. And actually, my husband was one of the, the guys, the, the boys that, you know, helped him sell it to the markets over there. Because in Vietnam, they, everybody makes their own hot sauce. Tran is ethnically Chinese. That made him a target of the communist regime in Vietnam following the Vietnam War. He fled the country on a freighter called the Hoi Phong, which means gathering prosperity. He named his company after the boat. He sailed to the U.S., arriving first in Boston, but the winters were too cold for him and he couldn't find a local source of fresh peppers. So in 1979, he moved to Los Angeles to establish his business. California is the farmer state. They have a lot of produce. So I started a business in California. Seems like the right choice. Tran uses red jalapenos. Those are the same as the green ones, but they're left on the vine to mature, so they become spicier and sweeter. In Asian, in China, chili must be the red, no green. From beginning, we're using red, no, we're not using green pepper. Like all this California food revolution stuff that was happening in the 1970s, where chefs were sourcing locally and seasonally, or trying to source locally and seasonally, he was doing it. Tin Nguyen writes about food and immigration. She says David Tran is quintessentially Californian in his use of local produce. He sourced these really fresh peppers, he processed them, and they were on your table. And that's, that has become the definition of Californian cuisine. And I really think that he has helped develop this idea of what it means to cook and eat locally and seasonally. Wynn says as Vietnamese and Thai food became more popular, chefs and foodies sought out sriracha as well, and eventually supermarkets started stocking it. For 28 years, Hoi Phong got peppers exclusively from Underwood Ranches in Ventura County. But the partnership fell apart in 2016 over allegations of an overpayment and breach of contract. Dueling lawsuits ended this summer when a jury in Ventura County awarded the grower over $23 million. But that was not Hoi Fong's first legal battle. Its factory is in Irwindale, about 20 miles northeast of downtown L.A. In 2013, the city filed suit because some neighbors complained about headaches and itchy eyes caused by odors from the plant. The company countersued. But by then, David Tran's sauce was a pop culture phenomenon, with sriracha-flavored everything, along with cookbooks, a documentary, and hip-hop shout-outs. Cold pizza with the hot sriracha. 
rap gang sriracha Man, you know I'm sauce Sriracha I put that on everything Sriracha I put that on everything Girl, you got a body like sriracha Every time I bring you around, the homies wanna watch Listen to me, sriracha all over That's how I be after the lawsuits over the odors were dropped, Tran, like a modern-day Willy Wonka, opened his factory to public tours. Alrighty, so good morning. Welcome to Hoi Fang Foods, and my name's Andrea, and I'm going to be your tour guide for today. Andrea Castillo leads us up a flight of stairs to look down on a conveyor belt. Bright blue 55-gallon barrels slide past while workers in white uniforms look on. The barrels are filled with a mixture of ground chilies, garlic, salt, and vinegar. That bright red paste will be poured into bottles and shipped around the world. So, does David Tran have a vision for the future? He says he has no plans to sell the company or take on investors. The company makes about $80 million a year without spending a dime on advertising. There are no new products in the works. Today, I'm 73. I don't have any energy to make the other product. All he wants to do, he says, is make what his customers want, and that's sriracha. For the California Report, I'm Avishai Artsy in Los Angeles. Coming up next week on the California Report magazine, excerpts from a live storytelling show we did at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. In November, we brought together some of the California Report's contributors and listeners for a show called Dreaming the Golden State. We explored the myth and the reality of the California dream. I remember you poking me with your elbow to wake up. You whispered, we're in California. I guess I keep driving north to Salinas, wherever that is. It was the first Chinese wedding in Marysville and quite the elaborate celebration, according to the local newspaper. We featured some of you, our listeners, on stage. They came from all over the state to read their letter to my California dreamer. Once you got to the Golden State, you were discovering yourself and the real you wanted to finally come out. With the unwavering support of your Modesto co-workers and friends, you got the courage to be who you really are. When you announce your transition from female to male. To pick up and leave Mexico, to carve out a life for yourself in another country is unimaginable to me. But you, a teenager from a small farm town did it and showed me courage that I cannot believe. That is a true California dream. For many of us, it's become too costly, too congested, too flammable to live here. I still believe in the California dream. I'm just going to look for it somewhere else. Reporter Vanessa Rancaño shared her profile of an Oakland teacher who's been working at her neighborhood high school for 50 years. Dr. Taylor just soldiers through overwhelming. I asked what she thinks her job consists of. Counselor, um, grandmother, auntie, cousin, social worker, just preacher. You don't ever get to just teach and you don't get to leave the kids here if you're doing what you're supposed You take them home with you mentally and you try to figure out what else can I do. And we couldn't have a show without music. Michael Marshall, whose songs were featured in The Last Black Man in San Francisco, brought the house down. There's something about the music that I hear. 
Dreaming the Golden State, next week here on the California Report magazine. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. If you missed any of our shows, you can subscribe to our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering this week from Rob Spate. Our director is Susie Racho. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor, and our editorial team also includes Asala Sanapur, Amanda Font, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world. Recognizing, through science, the interdependence of all living systems. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.